Good morning, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor John. I'm so, so glad that you've joined us here in worship this morning. I'm also thankful for those of you who are watching online. If you were here last week, we started a new series. We're going through the gospel according to Mark, and we're calling the series, Who is Jesus? And the reason we're calling it that is because this book will take us on a journey of discovery. We're going to learn who Jesus is. We're seeking to discover exactly who is Jesus according to the Bible, to God's Word. Not according to our perception, not as we'd like Jesus to be, not as we wish Him to be, not as we've thought Him to be, but what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? And if you hear last week, we talked about how Mark began his book by making it very clear that Jesus is the Son of God. He says it, Mark, the author, John the Baptist said it in his ministry, and God himself says, this is my son. Today, the passage we're going to look at is Mark 1, verses 12 through 20, and it is going to tell us about Jesus's message and his mission, his purpose. And think about it this way. If we learned that Jesus is God's son last week, well, knowing who someone's parents are, that tells you a little bit about who that person is, but you really come to understand someone when you listen to them, you hear what they have to say, and you see what they do, what actions they take in life, what their life is about. So today we're going to listen to Jesus's words, and we're going to hear that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that we should repent and believe in the gospel. And we're going to discover that Jesus's mission is to build a kingdom that he does through spiritual warfare with Satan, and he also builds this kingdom through his people, through fishers of men. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1. We're in verses 12 through 20. If you want to use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, I believe it's on page 994, but we'll also have it up on the screen. And I would ask, if you're able, once you're there, if you'd please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along as I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Mark chapter 1, big one, starting in, in the little verse 12. It's speaking of Jesus, and it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14 says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16 says, passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we ask for your grace to help us to understand 
more of who you are. What is your message? What are you trying to convey to us, God? Please give us wisdom to understand. What is your mission? What is the purpose of your son? Give us clarity to see that. God, I pray that as we read your words, may you convince us of the reality that your kingdom is at hand and that our response is to repent, to turn from sin, and to believe and trust in your good news, in you. God, as we think of your purpose to build that kingdom, help us to see how you won the victory over Satan and help us to also see our role in it, that you have called us to be fishers of men, fishers of people, those who call others into a relationship with you. God, I pray that you may remove distractions from our minds so that we could be focused on you, that you may increase, that we decrease that we see who you are, and we see why that is so important to us. Help us to see you clearly this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's look at what this has to say about Jesus' message and his mission. Now, we started with verses 12 and 13. They talk about Jesus and his temptation by Satan. We're going to return to that passage a little later because for now I want to start with verses 14 and 15 because they clearly convey to us Jesus' message, his message. They tell us that Jesus began his public ministry after John the Baptist was arrested and put in prison. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. We'll read later in the book of Mark that John the Baptist was arrested because he publicly critiqued the immoral actions of the king who was reigning over that territory. And Jesus will also eventually be arrested. But we'll talk more about both of those men and their arrest as we get later into the gospel. For now, Mark tells us that Jesus began his ministry, and the way he began was he taught something. He preached, he proclaimed a message. And this good news that Jesus proclaimed is what we have in verse 15. It's a summary of Jesus's preaching. If you listen to everything Jesus said, this was the basic message that he heralded and proclaimed to the world. And this is really important because these are the first words we have from Jesus in this book. And if you remember last week, some scholars believe, uh, most, that Mark is actually the first gospel we have. So this may There are other letters and things, but it's possible that this may be the first time somebody wrote down and distributed words of Jesus. The very first words of Jesus that somebody may have encountered are these words right here. And that makes it extremely important. I mean, think about it. If you're reading a book or watching a movie or a TV show, the very first thing a character says is usually a big clue into who that person is. It tells us, what is this person like? What do they value? What do they care about? Or think about people you've met. You probably remember the first impression that you had from someone, whether it was a good first impression or a bad one. And so in this verse, we're looking at Jesus's focus. What is the first impression that he wants to make on people? What does he want people to know about him? What did he think his ministry was about? And there's three truths he tells us in this verse. First, Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. It says, in God's perfect timing, God's kingdom is now being established. He's saying that God's kingdom has come near. It has overflowed from heaven. 
He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And by God's kingdom, he means God's perfect rule over people's lives and hearts. This is now coming to pass. God's kingdom is not a territory on a map. You couldn't draw its borders. No, it's God's presence in his people. It's an event where God intervenes to save those who are lost. God visits his creation to manifest, to reveal, this is who I am. This is my salvation. This is my reign. God had promised that his kingdom was coming all the way back in the Old Testament. And now Jesus says it is here through him. Some of those things God promised where he said that someday my spirit will come into individual believers. Those who follow me will have my spirit. God said that his enemies, including his great enemy Satan, would be defeated. God promised there would be a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship between God and his people. God promised that his people would experience resurrection from the dead. And he promised a Messiah and a Savior would arrive. And Jesus is saying that this is coming to pass now. Probably a well-known example of those verses or those times where God predicted, promised this kingdom. One is Isaiah 9, verse 7. It speaks of this coming kingdom and his Messiah. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Because he will be on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, it will be from this time forth, and it will continue forevermore. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what Jesus is conveying. This is happening now. Something historic has happened. The Apostle Paul, looking back on this, will say in Galatians 4, that when the fullness of time had come, that is when God sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under God's law to redeem, save those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came to make us God's children. Uh, Pastor Tom was actually joking about something and I was going to talk about it anyway. You've probably seen in stores around that they've already set up for Christmas and he mentioned some do that. I'm one of those who I don't sing Christmas carols until the day after Thanksgiving, but if you feel differently, uh, to borrow Paul's words, may God convince you otherwise. <laughs> yes, but no, it's fine. You can, you can do whatever you want. But the thing is, we can even see in our culture, it's October, but people are excited about Christmas. We could be cynical about that and say that's because they want to make money in the Christmas holiday season, and sure, there's an element of truth to that. But even in our culture, people recognize that Christmas is a big deal. Anybody who's heard of the holiday or interacts with someone knows, you know, these Christians really like Christmas. There's something important about what happened here. It's so much more than just the day Jesus was born, a birthday party for Jesus. No, it's celebrating what Jesus is talking about here, the coming of God's kingdom. In this moment, when Jesus was on earth, he's here, he's real. Then the kingdom, the person of God, was something you could reach out and touch. It was someone that you could see. God's kingdom was there. But Scripture also tells us that even in this moment, God's kingdom was not fully realized. Because when God's true kingdom is ultimately established, it will include all of creation being restored to God. 
This is what the people in Jesus' day were looking for. They expected one swift stroke, a Messiah to come and make everything right all at once. And Jesus is going to change and challenge those expectations. He's going to say that the fulfillment of this kingdom is going to happen over time. It's going to come in stages. Bible scholars like to call it that God's kingdom is already here, but not yet here. We already see some of it, but we do not see all of it yet. Even today, we are still waiting for the ultimate judgment of evil by the Lord. The establishment of God's perfect justice. We're waiting for the final defeat of death when death is no more. So in this moment, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God was present because he was there. But the experienced reality of it, that everyone sees it, is still ahead in the future. Now Jesus is saying it's starting, it's beginning now. God's kingdom is here. And maybe we, perhaps like the people listening to him, maybe thought, so what? What what does that mean for me? How should we respond to that? Well, Jesus tells us that since the kingdom is God is here, our response is to repent, is to repent. Now, repent is a somewhat like religious word. Even this uh, (laughs) picture I got here, it's a it's not a Christian search engine. It's just another search engine with, with photos you can use. And when I typed in repent, this was one of the images that came up. People associate repent with something religious. But all it means is that you're changing your mind, but it's a little stronger than that. It means to turn, to turn from an old way of thinking and to change your way of living. And that's why Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Something needs to change. He's telling the people, you need to turn from your rebellion against the Lord and surrender to God. You need to turn away from the way you've been living to a new, a different course of life. And in saying this, he's not making something up. He's continuing the message of God's prophets. In particular, John the Baptist, who was just preaching, said almost exactly the same thing. We read in the book of Matthew that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Almost exactly the same thing that Jesus said. So what does that mean for us? Well, it's a call for us. We need to decisively reject and turn away from our sin and rebellion against God. It means we need to think hard. We need to challenge ourselves to see the sin in us, to recognize where we fall short of God's glory, and then to turn from that sin. It's a challenge to look in our hearts to see what are the things that I value, what are the things that I devote my time and energy to. And if those things are not God, then those are idols of the heart. They may demand our attention, but we should turn from them to Jesus Christ. Now, repent doesn't mean that we're called to completely stop sinning all at once and then then never again. It's to turn our mind. It's to turn our mind away from sin to God and ask God to change our hearts. It's a rational, a willing decision we must make in order to be saved. The Apostle Paul speaks about how important this is in Acts 17. He's speaking to a crowd of people and says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why does he say that? Because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
And how does he do that? He does that by a man he has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance that he will do that to all by raising that man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. If we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that he is alive, then that means we must repent. It's God's proof that that is the response that is needed. It's easy to look like someone who knows God. It's easy to look like a Christian. It's easy to look like a believer. All you have to do is go to church, uh, maybe dress a particular way, say a couple key buzzwords that make people think you're a part of it. It's, it's easy to pull that off. But repentance, a turning from sin, acknowledging I have rebelled against God, I was wrong, I turn away from that, that is the true mark of God's people. And so let me be clear, someone who has not repented of sin is not a Christian, period. There is no hope for us if we have not turned from sin. But there's more to just that, because if I'm looking in one direction, if I'm looking one way and then I turn a different way, I'm now looking at something else. And so repentance is turning from sin and turning to something else. And that's what Jesus tells us in the next part of the passage. He says, not only repent, but believe in the gospel. We turn from sin toward belief in God's good news. We turn from our rebellion to trust in his acceptance and forgiveness. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here in this verse, we see how these two things fit together. Repentance and faith always go together. We cannot tear them apart. They are two sides of the same coin of salvation. Now, if you go to different parts of the Bible, you can find one place where it talks a lot about repentance, another place it talks about faith, but the key to understanding is a passage like ours where they're both used together. Another place they're both used together is Paul's words in Acts 20. 20 through 21. He's speaking to Christians that he's taught for a long time, and he reminds them how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks. What was he sharing? Of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both there. They both go together. But but let's talk about that faith, that belief. what, What is that referring to? Well, it's referring to trust in Jesus as the Son of God and as God's Savior that he has sent for us. When Jesus is saying this, I mean, he just arrived, so the trust he's probably calling for is trust in him, that he's arrived, that he's bringing God's kingdom. But now that we know the full story of Jesus's time on earth, it's a call to trust in Jesus and his perfect life, his death and his resurrection from the dead. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible tells us about this belief. John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes has faith in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not just a one-time decision. It is a life-changing transformation. But friend, if you have not heard that message, Jesus offers himself to you. He calls you to repent, turn from sin, and believe, have faith in him. Hopefully, maybe you're at a point that you're wondering or thinking, but but how does that work? How 
do I do it? How can I make those things happen? Oh, well, I have good, more good news for you because both repentance and faith are God's gifts to us. We can ask Him. He gives both freely. Look at how he describes repentance in the book of 2 Timothy. It's a letter Paul is writing, and he's speaking of people who have gone far, far from God. And he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. God gives repentance, but he's also the one who gives faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it is by grace, by gift of God, that we have been saved through faith. And that grace and faith is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, what we've earned, so that we cannot boast about it. So let me ask you, let me challenge you. Have you turned from your sin toward faith in Jesus Christ? And, and note my language there. I, I asked if an action happened. I didn't ask you if you prayed a prayer. I've asked, have you turned from sin to Christ? Anyone can admit that they sin, can admit that they do wrong things, but Jesus calls us to turn from them. The late Pastor R.C. Sproul said, no one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance without fleeing from sin and putting his trust in Christ alone. As we read our passage, this is how the Lord himself did evangelism. He announced the gospel, and then he said, in essence, your response must be to repent and believe. Oh, friends, if you know Jesus, then your life will look different And if your life doesn't look different from before you came to know Christ, then you should question where your faith truly lies. Another pastor, Kent Hughes, says, if you say that you believe, but there are no substantial changes in your life, then you had better consider carefully whether you truly believe. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to cause panic. I'm not trying to makes you, if you're one who has, uh, and I'm familiar with this, like a kind of self-confidence issue, you can really struggle with like, I I don't even know if, if I know God. I'm not trying to provoke that, but I am trying to be clear about God's word. Jesus is alive. This is his word. His gospel is here. We are called to repent and believe. So let me ask again, how have you responded to what God has said? We either respond to it and embrace salvation or we reject it and we find ourselves far from him. So that is Jesus' message. It's a call to respond to God's kingdom. But how did he go about telling that message, sharing that message with others? What was his mission on earth? If that's what he was saying, what, what was he doing? Well, He said this kingdom was coming, and his mission is to build that kingdom, to build that kingdom. And how did he do this? Well, we're going to talk about at least two reasons, two ways that come out in this passage. One way he builds that kingdom is through his spiritual warfare, through his spiritual warfare. Our text tells us that there's a spiritual battle going on, and think about it, it's logical. Almost every single 
kingdom, country, nation that has begun. There's exceptions like now in the 20th century, but before 20th, 21st century, but before that, almost every kingdom and nation had to begin in bloodshed and war. A battle had to be fought to say, this is a new kingdom, a new nation that has arisen. The same is true with God's kingdom. But it's not a battle of flesh and blood. No, it is a spiritual battle that Jesus has against God's enemy and adversary, Satan. And we see part of that battle happen here in the Gospel of Mark. In our text, it's just two verses, just verses 12 and 13. Mark doesn't overemphasize Satan and his power, but he still acknowledges that he is real, that Christ must fight him. He doesn't focus on the details we see in other Gospels, like Matthew and Luke. Maybe part of that is he wants to emphasize how powerful Jesus is. It's not an evenly matched fight. It's not that Satan and God are two sides of the same coin. No, God and his son Jesus, their power is far greater than that of the adversary. But let's read what Mark does say about this battle. We're told that the Holy Spirit drove, brings, compels Jesus to enter this battle in the wilderness. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That language there is the same language we'll see later. As Jesus cast out demons, the Spirit cast Jesus out into this battle. And remember last week, this is immediately after Jesus' baptism. He's been baptized, and now he's been filled, empowered with the Spirit for this purpose. If you remember last week, we talked about how heaven was torn open as the Spirit descended on Christ. Well, heaven's been torn open. This is hell's response. The Holy Spirit immediately, at once, sends Jesus into this battle. And if I mentioned before, the book of Mark has this word immediately a lot. Jesus is constantly in action because he is the Savior and he has a battle to fight. This battle was intentional. It's a divine appointment. It was needed to demonstrate that God's kingdom is here and it will be established. One scholar, Danny Aiken, points out how rather than shrinking back as God's people, the Israelites, were so prone to do, our king, our commander-in-chief, the true Israel, he goes out to fight in the trenches with us and for us. And in so doing, he turns back the enemy. He provides hope and a pattern for us to do the same. Christ goes into the battle. And we're told that he is in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan in verse 13. The idea in this, these temptations that there's multiple temptations over these 40 days. If you read in Matthew and Luke, it talks about three, but Mark seems to be suggesting there was even more than that going on during this time. It's a reminder, this time period, 40 days, of what happened to God's people, the Israelites. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years apart from God and continued to fail to follow him. But Jesus overcomes that failure in 40 days. It also reminds us of one of the very first stories we read in the Bible about the very first man who existed, Adam. And Jesus is set up in contrast to him. Jesus has to stand against the enemy when he is in the wilderness, whereas Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, we read in other Gospels, he's been fasting. He hasn't been eating before this battle. Adam was feasting, enjoying the blessings of God. Jesus is here alone 
without a helper, whereas God gave Adam a helper, Eve. Adam was surrounded by friendly animals that he named, but we're told that Jesus is out there with the wild animals. Yet despite all those disadvantages Jesus had, he remains faithful. He's living out this promise in James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus was faithful through these adversaries. Now, one phrase that, that may stood out there, I know it stood out to me, is why this random mention of he's there with wild animals, wild animals. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, literally, it means out in the wilderness, there would have been animals out there like wild dogs, wolves, maybe even leopards and bears or jackals. But I think that Mark is trying to convey to our mind that it's a sign of the evil that Jesus is fighting against. Maybe Mark even has in mind the people he's writing this gospel to. Maybe he's thinking of Christians who often, those who arrested or those who persecuted them, would throw them in areas with wild animals, for wild animals would attack them. And so maybe he's trying to draw their mind, Jesus experienced danger from wild animals as well. We don't know that, but regardless, we're told that Jesus has the victory in this battle against Satan and against these wild animals. Perhaps fulfilling God's promise in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, God says, I will make with them, my people, a covenant of peace, and I will banish wild beasts from the land, so that my people may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Despite this danger from the wild animals, evil, Satan, Jesus has victory. And we're told that there were angels who served, attended, ministered to him, the Old Testament prophet Elijah had a very similar experience. Perhaps after these temptations, after these 40 days, they provided him with food, physical sustenance. But the main point here is that after this battle, Jesus had supernatural support. All of heaven knew this was an important battle because this is about God's kingdom. Jesus was victorious over these temptations. And in the rest of the gospel, we'll see this victory. He goes, he meets those who are possessed, oppressed by demons, and he exercises them, removes them because he's already won that victory. He has good news to proclaim. God's kingdom is established. The battle has been won. But what does this teach us? What in the world does this mean for us today? Well, tied into what comes after there about our need to repent and believe. If we have repented and believed, then we too are in this battle. We should expect a lifelong battle with sin. Our lives will not be easy. It will not be a walk in the park. There will be temptations to sin. There will be a spiritual battle. But this passage tells us there is hope. We can have confidence to trust in Jesus because he was tempted. He received the full pressure of sin, but unlike us, he did not break. Uh, just about a couple months ago, we were studying the book of Hebrews, and one passage we talked about was this one, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, which says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But the difference is, yet without sin. So what does that mean for us? Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy, 
Find grace to help in time of need. Jesus sympathizes with us. He understands temptation so we can draw near to him. Kent Hughes put it this way, the most important factor in facing temptation is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, because Christ is the victor over temptation and sin. And when Christ fills our lives, Satan has no entrance. If our life is filled with Christ, we are relying on Him, then we can have victory over temptation and sin. So when we struggle with temptations, then we can tell Him. We sang it in the song, take it to the Lord in prayer. He understands. He's willing to help. If we struggle with anger, struggle with lust, with jealousy, greed, or whatever it is, we can take it to Him and say, God, I can't overcome this, but I know you can. Help me. So Jesus builds this kingdom through this spiritual warfare, but there's another way that we're told he builds his kingdom in this passage, and that's through fishers of men. Through fishers of men. He builds his kingdom through his people. It's fishers of men, not just men. Men, women, people. That's the phrase that it uses. These last few verses in our passage, it's the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. Now, we're told in other Gospels, if we go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 describes other encounters Jesus has with these men. So it's not the very first time he's interacted with them, but for Mark's story, for Mark's purposes, this is when they truly enter Jesus' life because they join his kingdom here. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus is walking along, passing along the Sea of Galilee, which is sea is kind of a strong word. It's really a lake in the northern part of Israel, and around that lake is where most of Jesus's ministry when he was out teaching and healing, most of it occurred in that area. That lake, though, even though it's just a lake, it had many fishermen there. About 30 years after Jesus's time, the Roman army came there, and they seized at least 250 fishing boats that were on this lake. So there was lots of people fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus there, he sees two of these fishermen, Simon and Andrew, the brother Simon, casting their net into the sea because they were fishermen. And then something interesting happens. Because Jesus is a teacher, he has a message, but a normal teacher of that day would see students and would tell them, you need to follow God. But Jesus says something else to Simon and Andrew. He says, follow me. Follow me. He's teaching us that being a part of God's kingdom, being a Christian means to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, his learner, to see what he has to say and to live in accordance with it. And look what he says to them. There's no preconditions that are set there. He says they didn't need to fix themselves. They didn't need to make themselves qualified for this. No, Jesus called them to respond as they were. They are to follow him. But it's not just that they follow his shadow, trudge behind him. No, he has a task for them as well. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I want you to fish for people, bring souls, seek souls for me, for God. And this language of fisher is actually, I discovered this looking at it, it's a reference to a promise in the Old Testament, something God said he was going to do. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord. They shall catch them, catch my people. 
Afterward, I will send for many hunters. They shall hunt them from every mountain, every hill, out of the clefts of the rock. They will bring God's people to him. And so by Jesus telling them, I'm going to make you fishers of men, he's subtly saying, I'm God. I have God's authority because Jeremiah said God was the one who was going to send for these fishers of men. Later, that passage will make it clear that it's not just fishing in the people of Israel, but even the Gentiles, the nations, are part of this gathering of God's people before his judgment. So this call to be a fisher of men, it's a call for all of God's people, all who follow Jesus. Being a part of God's kingdom means we will fish. We will fish. We will seek for more men and women to become a part of God's kingdom. This is the call for us. And we're told in verse 18 that immediately at once, Simon and Andrew, they leave their nets and they follow him. They were in the middle of fishing, but they realized this is something more important. And then Jesus goes a little farther, and he sees two brothers. He sees two more brothers, James and John. They're mending their nets, preparing their nets. We read it in verses 19 and 20, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. And in this verse, we see that this call goes out to different kinds of people. We see diversity among God's people in their finances. Because it looks like Simon and Andrew, it's just them and their boat. But John and James, they're part of a family business. Their father was wealthy enough to hire people to work alongside them. So even though they may be at a different economic level, both are called to follow him, and both sets of brothers respond to this call. Again, Pastor Kent Hughes puts it this way, Christ came with a radical message and then a radical call, and these four men responded with radical obedience. To follow Jesus, they had to leave everything they knew behind. They left their livelihood, they left their extended family, they left their future career. I mean, James and John, things seem... Things seemed to be going well for their family, but they left that behind because they understood that Jesus had a new calling on their lives, and they had to leave behind their old life, their old passions, their old pursuits to follow him. They've recognized there is a kingdom we're being asked to be a part of, so we have to leave our old citizenship behind to become citizens of Jesus's coming kingdom. Jesus was very clear about how difficult this is. We'll read later in the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, deny the things he wants, take up his cross, die to your old way of life, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Friends, following Jesus will have a cost. We forfeit our right to a comfortable life. We give up our right to enjoy a life of ease. We may even be called to give up a good life to follow Him. But it is the call He gives us because there is a great reward. That is where our life our eternal life is saved 
We should be committed to Jesus because we've surrendered to him. We've repented, turned from sin. We've trusted in him and we follow him. We share his good news with those who come after. It's how he builds his kingdom. It's the role each of us has to play in that kingdom building project. So we've learned a little more today about who Jesus is. We've discovered his message. What does Jesus think is important? Well, it's that God's kingdom is at hand. And so the question to us is, have we repented? Have we turned from sin? Have we believed and trusted in that kingdom? If you haven't, I would encourage you to seek, in God's word, seek someone out who can explain to you more about what it means to turn from sin and believe and trust in Jesus That is something to decide today, not tomorrow, not next week, but today, will I trust and follow Christ? That is his message to everyone. But we've also learned that his mission is to build a kingdom. He does it through spiritual warfare, through overcoming sin, and he does it through those he has called, his people, to fish for men and women, more followers of him. So are we following Jesus Are we depending on him to overcome sin? And is it our goal to fish for men and women to see more people come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? To come into a right understanding of who he is, to be restored to God so that they praise him and they praise him because he, Jesus Christ, alone is worthy of that praise.